Almost all of us seek more confidence in who we are and in the work we do. On this episode, the science behind how we can find a bit more of it, both for ourselves and for others. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 533. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. I think most of us recognize the importance of confidence in our work, the importance of building confidence in others. And yet it is often an elusive word because while we recognize the importance of it and we know it when we feel it and we have it and we see it in others, how to actually go about building it is a bit challenging. Where do we start? Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert that's going to help us to be able to explore how we can zero in on confidence to help us to change our behavior in a way that's going to be useful to ourselves and others. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Katie Milkman. She is an award-winning behavioral scientist and professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She hosts Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, and is the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good initiative. She has worked with or advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change, including Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Red Cross, 24-Hour Fitness, Walmart, and Morningstar. Her research is regularly featured in major media outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. She is the author of the book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie, such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure's mine. You tell so many stories in this book, which is one of the things that I love about your writing style. And one of the stories you tell is about your own journey in your academic work of working on your doctoral degree. And particularly, you zero in on a story of where you were halfway through your studies and you got a manuscript back from a journal and it prompted a conversation with your advisor. And I'm wondering if you could take us back and tell us about that moment a bit. Yeah, I would love to. I was a insecure third-year graduate student in a PhD program, hoping that someday I might become a PhD and also that I would become a professor. And it turns out in academia, in order to be successful, the key thing you have to do is publish lots and lots of manuscripts. And I had just sent off my most important manuscript, the one that I expected would become a big part of my dissertation and part of what I presented when I went out to other universities and tried to get a job. And it had arrived back rejected. Mm. Uh, there were reviews from three experts saying, just this is not good enough. We have no interest in ever seeing it again. Try to find another journal that might consider it. But basically, they said, this is garbage. And I was devastated. And I went into my dissertation advisor's office completely dejected, assuming that he was going to tell me we had to rip up what we'd done and begin again. He was a collaborator on this project that I was leading and he was providing mentorship. And instead, what my advisor did is he sort of sat back and said, don't worry, this is not a big deal. You did really excellent work. This is going to find a happy home. 
make a few revisions if you see ways to improve on what was wrong. And let's get this back out the door in the next two days, because if we get it right back out there, we'll have another shot at this. There's a lot of luck in this process. Instead of telling me that there was something wrong with me, that that I needed to rethink success, that, that things looked bleak, he propped me up, he gave me support, and he told me everything would be fine. And that was really a central tenet of his advising tactics, was exuding enormous confidence in his students. Even when we were battered and sure that things wouldn't go well, he actually famously gave all of his students an offer of an insurance contract when they would go looking for a job at another university. He would offer to pay them if they didn't get one, if they if they gave him a small amount of money up front in order to just display how absolutely certain he was that they were going to get a job and have a good salary and have a good outcome. He was making these offerings. And I don't think any of his students ever took him up on it. And I also don't believe any of his students ever failed to get a job. He has perhaps the most remarkable track record as an advisor of any professor in uh, in a business school. I That sounds like an extraordinary statement, but his advising is legendary. There's actually a picture on his wall of his academic family tree, and it's really unrivaled. There are dozens of offspring that have ended up at all of the top universities around the world. And I think a lot of that success has to do with the way he handles students who come to him facing challenges, who are distressed, who feel like they're set up to fail, which is a common part of being an academic. There's a lot of negative feedback, a lot of rejection. And he's he is so confident and conveys to his students that he knows things will work out. And then they do. It's really uh, an extraordinary example. And to uh, reinforce what you just said, I, I pulled this sentence out of that same chapter where you write, the average mental health metrics of students in leading social science PhD programs look similar to those of people incarcerated in U.S. prisons. Just to reinforce how much that it is really a struggle and a challenge and how much rejection happens at, at this stage in a lot of academics' careers. And it just self-doubt really does get in our way, doesn't it, a lot? It really does, particularly in these high-stress, highly competitive situations, which is what the top tier of academia looks like in a graduate program. There's, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future. You're in this in-between phase in life, and you have very little status. It's just a very challenging time for a lot of people, which might sound counterintuitive. You know, if you're at a top university in a PhD program, it sounds like it would be a rosy life, but it's very difficult. These are people who've been high achievers. That's what got them there. And suddenly they're thrown into the situation where they really don't know if they're going to be able to cut it and hack it. And historically, some PhD programs have kicked a lot of students out midway through who weren't succeeding. That is less common now, but it still feels like a really tough environment. Not not everyone's going to get a faculty job. There's a lot of anxiety. You make the point many times in this chapter and in the book that expectations really shape reality and that how we think about something really does affect how it is. And I, and I, my sense is like, we sort of, some of us know that intuitively, like we have that sense that that's true, but I'm, I'm wondering what the science says about that. Yeah. The science that you have probably heard of and your listeners have probably heard of that's that's best 
established on this topic is science on the placebo effect, where if you are given a sugar pill by a doctor or pharmacist and they say, hey, this is going to make things better, you know, you're feeling some pain, this is going to make things better, you're, you're in discomfort, it actually does improve outcomes substantially. And, and this is a very robust and I think quite remarkable finding. We've known this for hundreds of years, actually. That is an example of how beliefs can shape our outcomes. But I actually want to tell you about one of my favorite studies that's been done more recently that's really related to the placebo effect, but I think extends it to settings we might not think about as related to this medical phenomenon. It's much broader than a medical phenomenon. So a study I love was done by Aaliyah Crum, who is a professor at Stanford. She led this as part of her undergraduate thesis, and it was with Ellen Langer at Harvard University. What they did is they had a group of housekeepers at multiple hotels who were enrolled in a study, and it was an experiment. And these housekeepers were randomly assigned to one of two groups. One group of housekeepers was told that every time they were doing their jobs every day, they were actually getting the CDC's recommended amount of exercise because as they're changing the sheets on a bed, as they're vacuuming the floors, as they're scrubbing the bathroom tiles, they're getting a really good workout. And the other group wasn't provided with this information. And then the question was, would just telling people that their work was actually exercise lead to more benefits that you associate with exercise? In other words, once I I believe I'm getting exercise, do I get more benefit from that activity? And what they found is that a month later, the housekeepers in the study who'd been told their work was exercise had lost more weight. They had more controlled blood pressure. They're feeling better. And I, I think it's remarkable. Wow. These were, and these weren't huge effects, right? They're, they're small effects, like they'd lost a pound or so. But it, it was significant. And what's really interesting to me about that is thinking about what happened, right? Someone tells you this job you're doing is exercise. You start thinking about the job differently, and you probably do it a bit differently. I remember when someone told me as I was moving into my townhouse that every time I went up and down the stairs, I was getting passive exercise. And I was so lucky. And now whenever my family eats dinner on, we have a lovely roof deck. I'm very lucky to live in my home. Whenever we eat dinner up there and we need to get the ketchup from the refrigerator downstairs, I happily volunteer because I think, oh, here's a chance for me to get in some extra extra exercise today. Or doing laundry becomes a, a combination of a chore and a way of making sure I'm feeling physically fit and active. So when when you think about an activity differently, you actually do it differently. And I think that's the key insight at the heart of that study. Yeah, it's really fascinating how much what we think about and how we think about can really affect our own behavior and potentially what we can do to affect the behavior of others by what we are saying and advising people. And of course, like I, I know people are thinking like, well, how? How can I actually change my thinking? Right. It's it's um and part of the the interesting place there, I mean there's several tactics here you you talk about in the book. And one of them is around advice giving. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about how that shows up as far as how we think about things and also how we change our confidence. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is a really interesting insight. And the insight came from Lauren Eskris Winkler, who is about to start a faculty job at the Kellogg School at the 
at Northwestern University, and she was a PhD student not so long ago at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a, a really brilliant psychologist, and what she was looking for were people persist longer. And, and what were the differences between the people who succeed and fail? She worked with psychologist Angela Duckworth, who's the expert on grit. Oh, and she yeah. was doing all of these interviews with students and salespeople and people who were striving to achieve all different kinds of goals to try to figure out what really separated people who were successful from others. And what she then noticed that really struck her as interesting is that Even people who were struggling, when she asked them specifically what they could do differently, what might help them, they had really good insights and they loved being asked and they were somewhat surprised to be asked because all their lives they'd been used to just getting advice from people when they said they were having a tough time. They were used to someone putting their arm around them and saying, you know, I see you're struggling here. Here are my tips. And that was actually really demotivating. She wondered if we maybe needed to flip the script if we had everything wrong about the way we try to help someone who is not succeeding as well as they'd like to at their goals. She wondered if instead of offering them advice, which can be really demotivating and make them feel like, gosh, we must think they're completely clueless, (laughs) to what if we actually ask them for advice? Because they might have a pretty good idea of what could help them do better. And if we ask someone for advice, we're really putting them on a pedestal. We're conveying, I believe in you. I think you've got what it takes to figure out a solution to this challenge if you just think carefully about it. And not only that, again, based on these interviews she'd done, she had a strong suspicion that lots of people, if they introspected because someone asked them to provide advice to someone else, they introspected about what really could work, what really could help them achieve more, they would be able to dredge up a lot of insights that that were quite good that they maybe hadn't bothered to think through before because they'd never been put in a position where they needed to articulate strategies that could be useful. And then finally, once you've articulated what you think could work to someone else, you're going to feel really hypocritical if you don't take that advice yourself. And also there's something in psychology called the saying is believing effect. So once you say something, you proselytize about something, you actually start to believe it. Why would I have said this to someone if it wasn't good advice? So all of those forces combined led her to think maybe putting people in the position of advice giver could be a really powerful tool to both boost their confidence and really the insights they have to work with and the likelihood they follow through. And she has done lots of random assignment studies at this point showing that this is true. People think that they'll be better off if they get advice. But in reality, giving people advice, meaning being put in the position of a mentor, a coach, an advice giver, is really valuable to your own outcomes. And one of my favorite studies is one I got to work on with her, though she's done other work in other settings with adults, for instance. This is a study that we did of high school students. We took about 2,000 high school students at the start of the third academic quarter of the year, so roughly January. And we randomly assigned these students to either go about life as usual or come into a computer room to take a 10-minute survey. And on that 10-minute survey, they were just asked to give advice to their younger peers on how to study more effectively for school. So we asked them some multiple choice questions, some open-ended questions, you know, where do you go to study? How do you avoid distractions? And so on. And then we measured whether or not that activity of giving advice for just a few minutes 
had an impact on these students' third quarter grades. And we looked specifically at their grades in the class they told us they most wanted to improve in and in math, which is the class that we particularly cared about, given that it's so important to to life outcomes and so many students struggle with it. And what we found is actually a significant improvement in both math and in their target class among the students who had been randomly assigned to give advice to their younger peers. And these weren't huge effects. We're not turning C students into valedictorians. They're small effects. But for a 10-minute intervention, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And you could see how that might be enhanced if, if there were a more active mentoring situation going on where you're giving advice continually and have face-to-face contact with whoever it is might, might even make you feel like it's more important to follow through on the guidance you've given someone else. This is really fascinating. And one of the things I know that some people are listening to this and thinking right now is like, well, Dave, you've had shows on stop giving so much advice. And we've had Michael Bungay-Stan, you're on the author of The Advice Trap and cautioning us as leaders to, you know, to not just jump in and always be doing the advice giving and the stop and to listen and to coach. And I really sense in looking at the research and what you just said that there's a lot of nuance to this. And I think a lot of the nuance actually comes out in going back to your advisor and how he would do this. You mentioned in the book that he would give advice, but it was often done sparingly and unsolicited. And he would often find other ways to help some of his mentees actually be involved in the process. And I, I think that's really, really interesting. I was wondering if maybe you could share that about like that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should be very clear also that, you know, Max, Max's role as an advisor It was so interesting that he recognized if he gave a ton of advice, especially if it was unsolicited, that could be demotivating. So the prescription I'm offering is not that if someone's struggling, you should give advice. It's just the opposite. So it may be very consistent with what you've talked with people about on the show before. You shouldn't be leaping up and giving lots of unsolicited advice. Rather, when when you see someone who you could help who's struggling we have the wrong instinct, which is give them advice. And a better instinct might be, can you find a way to help them coach someone else? And that's exactly Ah, what Max did with his students. He had cohorts. So there would be several students at a time, but they were normally different stages of the doctoral program, right? A, A student who was four years in, a student who was two years in, a student who was three years in. And he would have his older students work on projects with his well, they weren't older, literally, they were older in the program. Our ages all varied. Uh, but the the students who were more advanced gave guidance on this project and served as essentially coaches and mentors to the more junior students. And that built great relationships. It built sort of a family kind of community. We all cared about each other's outcomes and we were like a team instead of competing for for a scarce attention. We were part of one group that, that had the same objectives. And the, the senior students got a ton out of coaching the junior students because they started to figure out, well, okay, what what is the right advice to give when a review comes back from a journal on a manuscript that says this? Or when you get this kind of feedback after giving a presentation, how do we handle that? They were starting to mold their understanding of those things as they coached junior co-authors. So that's sort of where the magic is. And then if you're thinking about how to use it for yourself, I will say there's two things that I think can be particularly useful. One is it can be helpful to simply try to step back 
and imagine what advice you would give a friend if they were in the same position you are. So you may get some of the benefits of this advice giving for yourself when you simply change your mindset and think about what would what would you do if you were in the advice giver mentality. The second thing that I think is really interesting is the idea of forming an advice club. And this is actually something I have done in my own professional life that I've found to be invaluable. An advice club is a group of people who have similar career goals or at a similar career stage and who all recognize sometimes they're going to hit challenges, bumps, where it would be really nice to get an outside perspective. And so my advice club involves three female faculty at top business schools, similar career stages, similar goal of both reaching academic and broader audiences with our work. And when we face a challenge, we're not sure how to handle it. We send an email to the group asking for advice. And you can see some obvious benefits of this, right? You're getting sort of free consulting from great people when you run into a road bump and you're not sure what to do. You're also getting some, you know, collegiality, some friends out of this because now you have shared experience. But what I hadn't appreciated when we formed this advice club years ago before I knew about Lauren's research was that there are actually some big benefits I get every time I offer advice. I thought I was doing something just out of the, you know, you know, an exchange, reciprocity. They're going to help me. I'll help them. But in reality, every time I offer advice, I'm helping myself too. And it's been amazing to see that it builds my confidence when my fellow advice club members come to me with a challenge and I realize, oh, I actually do have some really good ideas for how they can figure their way around this one. And let, let me articulate that. So I feel good knowing that I can help them. It boosts my confidence that when I face a similar challenge, I might be able to figure it out without even needing to bother anyone. And then when I do face those challenges, I've prepared mentally. I've thought about this already. I've got a strategy in mind. And so I, I think advice clubs are a way that we can get value out of this insight for ourselves without falling into the trap of you know, jumping and giving too much advice when when it's unsolicited and unwanted. There's something really magical about being able to help someone else out. And I love this invitation to think about not only how do we do that a little more ourselves, but I'm thinking about this from a leadership standpoint too, of I think sometimes we we don't think when someone comes to us and maybe they're struggling with confidence and they don't necessarily need to be because of the expertise they have and the experience of, of really looking for the opportunity for them to do some coaching, to do some leadership, formally or informally, it is really such a, such a contributing factor to confidence. And, uh, and I, 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 I'm going to be looking for more opportunities to do that, just thinking about this, because it, it really does make such a big difference. It really does. And I have to say, by the way, that one of the most wonderful parts of my career has been mentoring junior students, which is, of course, a really important part of being a professor is that you get to coach and teach. And I teach my MBA students, but I also have a flock of my own doctoral students now, just like Max did. And my understanding of science of how to do good science just grew in leaps and bounds as soon as I started mentoring other people because it forced me to have more clarity around the guidance I was offering. You know, I I couldn't just sort of figure out a solution and do it. I had to articulate it. I had to explain why is this the right path. And doing that forces a different kind of thinking. Answering those kinds of questions forces you to do a lot 
deeper thinking than you would if you're just solving a problem yourself. One of the other areas you dive into on the research on confidence is you know, how we handle situations when we mess up. And one of the invitations you make is set, yes, set ambitious goals, as many of us do, but also to allow ourselves some emergency passes, I think is the term used in the book, when you slip up. Tell me about that. How does that work? Yeah, I love this research too. This is research that was done by Marissa Sharif of Wharton. She's my junior colleague in the marketing department and Suzanne Shu at Cornell University. And the insight came from Marissa's own life and her challenges getting herself to exercise every day. She really loved running, but found it was difficult to always squeeze a run in. And she also found that if she skipped a couple days, things would quickly unravel mm. and she would get out of the habit and, and things would fall apart because she'd lose her confidence that she could really make this an everyday activity. And then, then slowly weeks would pass and she wouldn't have gotten in her run. And as she thought about what she knew about behavioral science, she recognized there were these two competing challenges that she was facing. One is that we know from research on goal setting that the best kind of goal you can set is a really tough goal for yourself, right? So for instance, if you're a runner and you want to be running regularly, the, the best goal might be to try to do it every day of the week. That's a really tough goal. It's hard to always achieve, but by pushing yourself, you can get farther in general. But she also knew about something called the what the hell effect, which is that when you slip up, we often throw up our hands and give up on ourselves. So if you set a tough goal, you're going to have more slip ups because say, if you're trying to do something seven days a week, it's less likely you'll follow through. And then you may throw up your hands and say, what the hell? I'm not going to be able to do it this week. I should just give up entirely. So she was wondering, how can I offset those two challenges, sort of harness the power of the tough goal without this, what the hell effect? And she came up with this very simple strategy, which is she said, okay, I'm just going to give myself two emergency reserves a week. So I'm going to try for seven days, try for seven days of running. That's my goal. But if I have a disaster that strikes, right, I, I have to go out late for a dinner with a colleague and I'm not able to get my run in that day, for instance, and it's a surprise, then I'm going to use an emergency reserve and I'm going to declare that it was an emergency reserve. It doesn't count. I'm still on track. She uh -huh. thought, this psychology might be really useful to other people. So for her dissertation work, she actually looked at this in, in a different context, not with runners, but with people who were being paid to do a series of tasks each week. And she gave them different goals, either to log in and do these tasks five days a week, which was sort of an easier goal, seven days a week, which was a tough goal, or seven days a week with two emergency reserves. So if they missed a day, maybe they wouldn't give up on themselves. Huh. And what she found is that and, and there were, of course, cash rewards associated with achievement. What she found is that the best performers by far were the ones randomly assigned to this emergency reserve group who had the tough goal and these get out of jail free cards that they could use so they could keep striving and, and keep going for that tough, ambitious goal. But if they had something go terribly wrong, they wouldn't have to say, I give up on myself. And I think it's a really important insight that that we are going to have some slip ups. We want to be pushing ourselves to the max. We want to be pushing ourselves to achieve as much as we possibly can. So you don't want to give yourself a, a lower bar, but if you can accept that emergencies happen and, and calling them emergencies, she felt was really important too, rather than sort of, you know, cheat days or something like that. An emergency implies you really shouldn't use this unless it's absolutely necessary so that you won't start 
planning on emergencies. Huh, uh, and, yeah. and she found that in her research, people didn't. They, they respected the emergencies. They only used them in a real pinch. And they used them less than people who had lighter, lighter lift goals. It's, it's really fascinating that those that have that option actually do better than the folks who either just set the five-day goal or the seven-day goal. And as you were saying that, and, and it, this is not maybe a, a good example of the research because of what you just said, of it truly is an emergency, but 20 years ago, I did this diet program <laughs> that I wanted to lose about 20 or 30 pounds. And the this program had the architecture of six days a week, you really were on it. And the seventh day, you could eat whatever you wanted. And it was it was really interesting to go through that experience because the first like couple of weeks, like the seventh day was like party day, right? I ate whatever I wanted and it was it was glorious. And after a couple of weeks, it was like gross <laughs> to eat tons of stuff on the seventh day. And how much just having that buffer really changed my behavior. And I lost the weight and I've never gained it back. And it really like it really changed just how I thought about my own behavior in in eating. And it I think the thing that is really interesting about this for me too is a lot of us, you and me, Katie, and a lot of folks who listen are really like high achieving people. We set a bar high for ourselves and we sort of feel like if I'm giving myself an emergency out that somehow I've cheated or it was an A minus instead of an A and that's just not good enough. And yet (laughs) the irony is that by doing that, we actually do better, don't we? Exactly. We're more likely to get the A. So objectively, performance is significantly higher when we have that little bit of wiggle room in order to ensure we don't give up on ourselves when there's there's a, a blip. One of the other pieces of advice you have that comes out of the research is to focus on personal experiences that make you feel successful or proud. What's a good way to enter into that when thinking about confidence? Hmm. It's a really good question. There's really fantastic research on the importance of having a growth mindset that's been done by Carol Dweck of Stanford University and her protégés. And a growth mindset means instead of thinking about, for instance, your IQ as a fixed trait or your performance in general as fixed, you think about it as something that can change and grow with effort and time. And what that does when you recognize that you are a work in progress and you can grow is that when you face a challenge, when something doesn't go your way, you can think about that as a learning experience rather than a diagnosis of your incompetence. And it it makes it easier to feel proud, I think, when when things go well, you can be proud that you tried hard. When things go poorly, you can be proud of what you've learned. And, and there's an opportunity to have a positive framing on all of the experiences that we face as we take on challenges instead of only a, the subset that turn out exactly as we'd hoped. And, and as we all know, most things don't turn out exactly as we'd hoped. Yeah. So I think adopting a growth mindset, a la Carol Dweck, is a great way we can approach that challenge. As you reflect on your own career journey, what you've learned from your research, what's been most helpful to you in helping you to increase and also just maintain the confidence you have in your work? 
I think the most important thing to me has actually been my social group, the people I surround myself with and the people I spend my time with that they've been chosen, not always intentionally. I should have been more intentional and I've become more intentional as I've gone on, but with maybe some good luck at the beginning and more intentionality as I've progressed. There are people who prop me up, who believe in me, who I believe in as well. And they're people who show me what's possible because they're high achievers too. And so they're great role models and great friends, great collaborators, because they have confidence in themselves. They've achieved a lot, but they also care about supporting the achievement of the people around them. So I, I think our social set, and I don't mean your friends only, although that, that can be really important too. I, I often mean the people in your orbit at an organization. They matter so much. And putting care into, into finding the right mentors, the right friends, the right people who you can go to when you face a challenge, who will support you and help you think through it and help you believe in yourself. I think that that's been invaluable to me. I, I stumbled into it a bit I, with Max, who's a truly couldn't imagine a better advisor. I really didn't know that when I met him. I just found someone who seemed willing to take on a, a doctoral student with the interests I had and seemed friendly. So I wasn't assessing him. And, and then I think I lucked into one of the world's most wonderful advisors. But as I've grown in my career, I have come to appreciate just how critical that was and, and to look for it more strategically. Katie, this has been so helpful on just thinking about how we can do some practical things that help us with our own confidence. And there's so much more in the book. Uh, one of the things in the book that I, I was tempted to ask you a lot about as well is just how much timing makes a difference in inviting change. And, and particularly, it's just fascinating, some of the research around looking at organizations and how do they encourage employees to take on learning opportunities and retirement and like timing around that. I, I think if if that's something that is of interest to those of you listening on thinking about strategies for doing that, I, I would really recommend uh, the book. There's so much more to dive in on. Katie, before I let you go, you know, one of the things that I think we're, we're all doing is learning, growing, and I know the experts are too. As you have done this work over the last couple of years, as you've done the research for the book, what's something that you've changed your mind on? I think one key thing I've changed my mind on over the last two years is whether or not there are any, I'll call them silver bullets, simple strategies that can create durable change. When I started really the book project, I started my research on behavior change, which is what everything I study is really about. I was hoping that I would be able to find the equivalent of the fountain of youth for behavior change, right? the, the, um, the holy grail, the single ingredient that creates durable, lasting change, if only you harness it. And what I've come to realize through research and writing and, and talking to people about their personal journeys is that that was a myth. There is no silver bullet. There's no single ingredient or single solution. And instead, there are different solutions depending on the challenge you face, and each will take you a long way 
if you use them appropriately, but often they need to be used in combination. Often they need to be switched at different stages of your career or your journey as the barriers you're facing change. So I think that was a really important, it was probably a naive belief to have at the beginning of my journey, but it's been really valuable for me to to learn and see that we can be more strategic and get very far with change, even if there is no silver bullet. Katie Milkman is the author of How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. If this conversation is motivating you to make a bit of a change with some newfound confidence, several related episodes you may also want to listen to. One of them is episode 196, The Way to Make New Behaviors Stick. My guest on that episode was Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall, one of the best-known coaches in the world, and in that conversation we talked about what he does and has done throughout his career of helping executives at the highest levels change their behaviors to become more effective. He walked us through some of the philosophies behind how he does that, and perhaps more importantly, the practical steps that we can use for ourselves and how he does it for himself. Episode 196 is where to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 458, The Way to Be More Coach-Like with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael, the author of the very popular The Coaching Habit book and, of course, The Advice Trap as well. Katie and I talked a bit about advice giving and some of the nuances behind that in this conversation. And if you'd like to really dive in more on that and where to utilize advice and also where we can go wrong with it. Episode 458 is a great complement to this conversation. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 507 earlier this year with BJ Fogg, How to Change Your Behavior. BJ out at Stanford doing a ton of research on how we can change our behaviors through habits. He, of course, is the author of Tiny Habits. And in that conversation, we get very granular on specifically changing a habit and how do we create the architecture behind it? How do we take practical action? What to do, what not to do to set ourselves up for success? So many of you told me how useful that conversation was. Episode 507 is where to go for that on details. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. This episode's going to be filed under two areas, personal leadership and also habits. Both of those folders, we have tons more episodes that have been aired over the years. If you haven't set up your free membership yet, that's a great way to get started with the entire library that I've aired since 2011. That's because you can search by topic for the specific areas you're looking for right now that are relevant to you, your team, and your organization. Once you register at coachingforleaders.com, you'll be able to get access to all of that for free, plus all of the free audio courses that are inside of the membership, the member casts, all my weekly leadership guides that come every Wednesday, and plus a ton more inside the membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. Take just a few seconds and sign up for free, and you'll be giving access to all of those areas as well. Next week, it is our regular question and answer show. Bonnie and I will be joining uh, up forces to respond to as many of your questions as we can. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for this coming week or for a future question and answer episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Submit your question to us for consideration, and I look forward to joining with you back next week with Bonnie. Have a great week. Take care.